Hi again, friends. Welcome in for mile 70 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Nothing elicits common emotion among runners like anticipating an upcoming long run. Our guest today will leave you feeling prepared, enthusiastic, optimistic, and ready to challenge your preconceived notions of your limits. We interviewed David Roach, one of the best coaches in the business, for a thorough look at planning, fueling, and injecting quality into your long runs. David has experience running with the Nike Elite Trail Team and coaching some of the country's best distance runners. If you like listening to David, as I'm sure you will, check him out with his wife, Megan, on the Some Work All Play podcast and read his book, The Happy Runner. Now here's David and mile 70 of Seconds Flat. David, thanks for joining us. It's a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to, to talk with you. And um, I've gone back and listened to some of the episodes and I'm just like in love with it. So it's, I'm so excited. Thanks so much. As a guy who sleeps wearing a Breathe Right strip, I feel like we are connected at the highest level. Oh my gosh. I feel like this makes us brothers. Did we just, <laughs> did we just become best friends? I think we just became best friends. This has yeah. become a, a scene out of Step Brothers very quickly. When was the genesis for you of the movement to the life-changing nasal breathing assistance device? Yeah, so for me, it just came, one, I was, we're big fans of cycling. And, you know, say what you want about cycling. They have so much data on every single athlete that people won't be doing something in that sport unless there's at least no evidence that it hurts um, and possibly helps. And then, you know, we were watching uh, the Tour de France this year and had been watching it for a couple of years and nose strips became a bigger and bigger part of the Peloton. And I'm like, well, that clearly must have some at least perceived benefit, even if it's a placebo. Um, and I'm highly, in, <laughs> the placebo effect gets me every time. So I was like, I should try this. And yeah, for me, at least in running, it makes it, it makes a difference. And then for evening time, um, I have a pretty, <laughs> this probably isn't a video podcast, but I have a pretty narrow nose bridge. Um, so sometimes I often would get stuffed up at night. And so that makes a big difference for me. So I don't nasal breathe or anything during exercise and I don't recommend it. Um, but I think as much oxygen as we can get into our systems, that's a productive thing. Um, and I'll be really interested to see, and you know, what I'd be really interested to see is the exact studies on this in people with different like uh, morphologies of their nose in particular, since I imagine that plays a big role. But basically, I'm, I'm in the nose strip mafia now. Yeah, you're looking back at a guy you can tell with a, a multiple times broken nose here. So I get it. Uh, maybe Galen Rupp was onto something early all those years well, maybe, ago. Maybe that's it. I, you know, I've broken my nose many times, including once during a running race where I got to the finish line, I didn't realize it. And blood was all over my face and it was totally off to the right. And so like, I tried to reset it personally, which wasn't a good idea. Uh, hence my nose as it is. So maybe that's, maybe broken nose history should be the first thing we ask. <laughs> I have done the, the self-reset as well. And that's ugly. But you just said in, in a race, you had a, a break? Trail race, trail race. So it, I feel was like- it a fall? Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone falls. I right. was, I could, when I was younger, I was especially uh, prone to falling. I think something's changed. I must have lost some of my nerve. But I remember uh, one one fifty k. I must have fallen like fifteen times in that race, and it went great. Um, <laughs> and like last couple of years, I haven't fallen at all. So maybe the moral of the story here is I need to get back to some of my falling ways. Yeah, stay aggressive. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if, I fell, but, if I fell in a track race or something, it would be a little bit different. It'd be a heck of a story, though. It's true. <laughs> Before we get into the nuts and bolts of all kinds of long run specifics generally what are the broader adaptations that you're hoping to create within a long run i love that question and for me i like to break it down into four buckets and i think when when people are thinking about adaptation and training it for themselves these four buckets can actually be really instructive at balancing different adaptation processes so you know each of these had they're interconnected there's feedback cycles and each of them could be 100,000 pages um, so it'll be grossly oversimplified. The first is the general aerobic 
uh, bucket. In, into that would also be metabolic adaptation. So when you're thinking of a long run, uh, aerobic, aerobic benefits are probably the primary ones, including uh, lipid metabolism and fat oxidation. Like those are the main things you hear about. Um, but also, you know, expanding capillaries around working muscles, essentially getting the heart to pump more fuel to muscles so that they can use that for high performance. So even though if a long run is slower, it is still causing the aerobic adaptations that also help at faster paces um, that are especially unique to getting above that 75 to 90 minute barrier, but especially around two hours. Um, the second bucket is the musculoskeletal bucket. Uh, here with long runs in particular, you might be thinking it's more based on resilience than pure output. So, you know, with the long run, your, your output levels necessarily need to go down slightly, but the overall chronic stress or the acute stress adds up to become chronic stress over the course of a long run. That can create some unique adaptation stimuli, though I don't think it's the main thing. Um, so that's kind of important too, particularly for trail racers or people that might be pushing the limits of their bodies when they're going up to marathons. Um, and then the, the final two might be a little bit less relevant for long runs and possibly counterproductive are like generally biomechanical efficiency. So form, um, how the body uses the complex uh, power generation and running to create forward motion. And the final is like the neuromuscular end. That could have some benefits if you think about things ranging towards the central governor or how the brain processes pain signals and things like that. Um, but that, those are the, the four general things. And you know, when we're talking about long runs, we're generally focusing on the aerobic system and the musculoskeletal system and how that feeds back into each other. So I'm gonna put a pin in that because there's a lot of great stuff right there and swing slightly away from that because those physiological adaptations are certainly rich and abundant in the long run and plenty to dive into. But let's add another bucket maybe. What about the mental benefits? How are you using long runs for perhaps less tangible but equally significant psychological benefits? So for me, like if, if we're, I'm gonna keep the same framework, I'll throw those into neuromuscular, where it's just like the neuro will, will encompass all of that since I'm making this up on the fly. Okay. Um, but for me in general, I do not train towards mental benefits. Okay. Um, that comes in the process of training and in the process of someone's personal and emotional growth. But I think every time someone does a hill workout, they grow a little bit emotionally. Um, yeah. Every time someone goes through a breakup or you know, a work demotion or a work promotion or whatever you want to say, um, all of that adds into the bucket. So for me, I think that most athletes will find their physical limits before their emotional ones. So I think a lot of the times we say this, this person was limited by their brain, but in reality, it's their brain interpreting the physical, physical signals. I think most of us will find that, that limit. And the people that are able to push to the edge and you see you know, they're, they're held up as like, oh my God, Alberto Salazar back in the Boston Marathon almost killed himself or whatever. Um, that's probably as much the phys like his physical nature and genetics working in, in, uh, together to create an athlete that can do that rather than an athlete that has made decisions over time to be able to do that. Often we just frame the mental framework as something that is uh, more wishy-washy or, or, or psychological. When I, in reality, I think often we're just doing what our bodies can handle on the day. And sometimes that feels like we're pushing to our limits and other times it feels like we're selling ourselves short, but we're probably perceiving the same signals. I really like that. The two are so much intertwined, not necessarily distinct and as you present that, I picture this as the body is callousing the mind, right, with those efforts that in the buckets that you presented. And then over the longer term, it's maybe an upward feedback spiral. Uh, the mind then helps continue to callous the body when we get the things like toughness and confidence and, and race yeah, preparation. Yeah. You know, long runs can be a place that you practice your belief. I love to call, I love to call any effort self-belief practice. You know, belief is by far the most important variable in an athlete. Um, but I think belief is not something that in and of itself is special. Like on a, spe on a specific day, what it is is the incremental gains that you get from practicing that, that muscle. Not because of, it makes you better at believing. I think because it makes that belief turn into better physical output. Every time on a hill workout, you, like, if you just give yourself that chance and you get a little bit farther or do want, you know, that final rep that you were debating doing, um, it makes you physically actually adapt to 
the little itty bitty bits of belief in an athlete that, you know, when you look at some top professional runner, some of like, like some of the people I coach, you know, they do these mind blowing, like things that almost make no sense if you really understood their physiology at the time or their workouts. But what I'm seeing and getting behind, getting to see behind the scenes is no, it totally makes sense if you've actually seen them like put it into practice, they've adapted to that physically. So that if I'm talking about someone racing hundred miles, when they get to mile 60, um, they know exactly what's going to happen physically. Like their bodies are ready for it, but it's because of what they did on that five by three minute hill workout or getting out the door on the day that they didn't necessarily want to or, or anything like that. So um, long runs are a great place to practice that and something I really encourage. But I also think, uh, I always like to draw a distinction that like how much an athlete wants it, I don't necessarily think matters that much, especially past a certain point. I think that uh, everyone kind of wants it. Um, but what we perceive as not wanting it or wanting to turn off our brain is usually our brain feeling fatigue, feeling glycogen depletion, uh, feeling any number of things related to breakdown, and then interpreting that as, uh, I guess I don't want it today. When it's like, actually, the body just doesn't want it. If the body was good, we'd be, we'd be good. Yeah, that is well said. And, and then to step back to the macro, everyone wants it in the big picture of, I have a race in six months that I really want it, but what are the things I'm doing along the way to actually prepare myself for my body to be right on that day? The, the scales there are tremendous. Oh, yeah. I think six months, I mean, start to think six years and beyond, you know, are the way I try to approach training is like, okay, what is the absolute raw potential of this athlete? And if there's anything I've learned from getting to see athletes of all different levels, it's that that is almost always so far beyond where you can see in the moment that it's, it's that the point of the exercise isn't to actually project it. The point is to expand your definitions of what limits actually are. Um, and I want myself to do that as a coach, but most of all, I want an athlete to do that and to accept that. Um, because once, once that happens, then you start to see these unbelievable breakthroughs of, of what someone's capable of long-term where you get this growth process that you look back and you're like, God, if I could just tell the person what I know is in their future, they would just slap me in the face and tell me I'm a liar. <laughs> um, so what I do instead of giving them specific goals now is just try to broaden their horizons a little bit. Okay, so I've heard you say that you like 14, 15, 16 miles, somewhere in that range as a nice place of stasis year round for long runs for distance runners. If you're not in say a specific training cycle or right after a race. Yeah. And total agreement on consistent inclusion of things like the long run or strides for both maintenance and development. I'll ask you to go a couple different directions though from that baseline. So first let's move into a more specific period. Say you have an experienced marathoner. You've done lots of lifetime mileage, plenty of long run workouts, and you're maybe 16, 18 weeks out from a goal race. What are some more specific mileage or quality goals you often set for long runs in that phase? Amazing question. So my general idea with long runs, particularly in elite athletes, but all levels, is more towards the, the Hanson's end of the spectrum, where I would rather develop stress without the, necess without the risk of going over distance and really stepping up that distance, particularly early in training cycles. Um, so before raising volume necessarily over 16 miles or so in for athletes that are running five hour marathons, you know, 16, it would be shorter than that. So you can go to 12 or 10 or, or go by time or whatever, um, is to start introducing intensity into those long runs. Um, and that gets to some of the main goals of long runs, which is, you know, the, the musculoskeletal, for example, like practicing lower outputs, isn't necessarily super beneficial beyond a certain point. And that's where that period of stasis comes in. And then also aerobic, you know, like if you're using your long run just to put in a bunch of miles, you're going to be t adding chronic stress load that takes away from your other types of workouts. So I kind of like to combine them and make it so that we really concentrate the stress on a long run day rather than necessarily adding, like I'm not a huge fan of the Saturday workout into Sunday long run style um, because unless an athlete is a freakish adapter and responder, which many pros are, you start to get both runs just kind of suffer. Um, and injury risk goes up. 
Um, so how does the intensity within the long run get structured? Um, I like to start with just basic fartlek uh, type style running, very short intervals around thresholds, so like one hour effort um, mixed into the context of a long run. For trail runners, these can be on uphills, much more in the context of your run. For road runners that might be running on flats, um, it can be one minute every five minutes or two minutes every 10, essentially these semi-structured fartleks where you're working around threshold. Um, and then that's, so that's pretty far out from the race. Like you may use the 16 week framework. Um, and then as you get closer, things get more specific. So when we're talking threshold, that's the upper end of the intensity spectrum I'd ever want on a long run because we're, we're wanting aerobic stimulus and anything above threshold stimulus, you're starting to get into processes that will be a little bit less productive for the aerobic benefit of the long run and then get more specific as we go. So, you know, you might start to go from threshold to like half marathon effort, which would be very similar to threshold for elite athletes and then, or, or a little bit slower with longer intervals. And then finally, as you get closer to the marathon or, or whatever the event is, really dialing in the more traditional, um, brutal in some ways, grindy workouts um, and increasing the mileage, you know, when you get within the two month window in particular. Oh, there was so much good in there that I want to. <laughs> I realize as I'm saying this, I'm like, you ever seen like a Jackson Pollock painting where there's just paint all over the walls? And I feel like that's kind of my answer to that question. So you can pick out one piece of paint and we'll, we'll look at why that's there. Yes, I, I, w I want to peel back on a couple of things there that I just found fantastic. One, maybe tangible. Can you give a specific example of a quality long run that follows this model that you love for your athletes? You mentioned maybe it's threshold, maybe it's fart, like some kind of combination I've heard you speak to before. Maybe lay one out for us. Great. So, you know, the basic fart like that I mentioned earlier would be a good one for inter especially introductory athletes or a pro athlete that's starting to switch cycles, um, which would be, you know, if you're doing 14 to 16 miles, we start easy and then around 20 minutes, do one minute on every five minutes with that one minute on being controlled and powerful. And then in between most athletes will find themselves like working towards a float where, you know, they're not dropping down purely to very easy, slow running. They're really, you know, starting to run something that might not get down to marathon pace, but not be, be a little bit faster than the normal easy where they're starting to get a little bit more stress on the body that can really add to the aerobic stimulus overall. Um, some overall faster paces too. That one is also great for like, you know, intermediate athletes or beginner athletes all throughout a training cycle, you know, where we're a little bit less worried about maintaining these freakishly fast marathon paces that are very specific. Like this is a great all around break up your long run run. Um, but then to get a little bit more detailed, like as those, as an athlete adapts to, to that sort of thing, we're adding workouts during the week. I like just traditional threshold style stimuli early in long runs. It's I think one thing that has really set apart our athletes in terms of their performances, particularly in like longer races, like 50 Ks, um, but also, you know, some, a lot of Olympic trials people in marathon, which could just look as simple as your classic 20 to 30 minute tempo around one hour effort. Um, and then continue your long run after that, which, you know, I have some theories uh, that are a little bit too detailed that, that could enhance the overall stimulus and make it play longer or, you know, breaking down that 20 to 40 minutes, even like going a little bit longer into chunks, like, five on, five easy, uh, whatever. Essentially getting the time at threshold or so relatively like when you're strong, middle of the training cycle, getting to the point that not only are we getting a great long run stimulus, we are getting a great overall threshold stimulus. And from there, the mar hard marathon workouts later are much more achievable and we can start to push them a little bit faster because we're constantly trying to get faster. Uh, you know, I think a lot of athletes like if an athlete is looking like at the top level, it's looking to get their marathon pace from 520 to five minutes. Like that requires a lot of hard work. Like we can't do that by running marathon pace necessarily. We need to run a little bit faster than that. And similarly for like an athlete that's trying to go from four hours 30 to 345, like it's going to feel pretty uncomfortable or not uncomfortable, but they're going to need to do like concerted workouts to get there rather than just like brute force um, marathon effort long runs. Um, I like to try to keep the constant focus on a little bit more traditional speed. So you mentioned that threshold effort, again, being somewhere in that hour race effort. Range. Yeah, yeah. And it super, uh, I don't prescribe paces. I like athletes to do it on feel. Essentially, it just means comfortably, comfortably fast. Yeah. Um, and that varies a lot based on the athlete. 
And you like that as your high end of stimulus within a long run, you mentioned, as opposed to we might see in a midweek workout where we layer this. Maybe you start at threshold and then you have shorter intervals that are faster as it builds, or maybe you move to hills. There's all sorts of great combinations there. Uh, why do you like to cap that at threshold effort within the long run? I think it makes sense, but maybe just teasing it out a little bit for folks. And then two, why early in the long run going to those rather than late? Two amazing questions. So general rule is when you start to go above threshold, how the cells actually experience the effort starts to change slightly. There's no specific inflection point, though, you know, it feels that way when we start talking about thresholds. But once you start pushing a little bit more, you have a little bit more anaerobic con contribution, even though it's pretty small. Um, the way the body processes and handles the fatigue changes slightly. And like, if you ever heard of, you know, for the people listening, like MAF training or, or, or heart rate cap training, well, that's, it, it's not necessary at all. The, the reason that that sometimes works for people is that there are elements of the aerobic system that can be countered slightly from going a little bit too hard too often. And what threshold, it's like a convenient placeholder of, okay, we're still talking about an almost solely aerobic effort, but very efficient. And, uh, you know, the power output can be maximized. And that gets to the second point, which is we want to maximize power output. What I care about is running economy, making the same effort take less energy, um, the same pace take less energy. And um, if you do a workout at the end of a long run or, or up-tempo at the end of a long run, it is going to take more energy. That is the reason that people feel like it works better. But the point is, like, I don't want whatever the pace ends up being to be harder. I want it to be as easy as humanly possible. Because if we can adapt to that, if we can get the musculoskeletal system, biomechanical, neuromuscular, all that stuff to adapt to whatever that pace is in a way that makes it feel, more, feel easier, we'll be able to sustain it longer. Um, so I really want us to chase that ease because marathon efforts and, and all race efforts really need to, like, they come from that place of ease. And, um, once we can cultivate that, that's how you get these athletes that are able to run freakishly fast paces and do it for the length of a marathon or the length of an ultra. Um, it's because they've improved their running economy to the point where it's not freakishly fast to them anymore. It's just, it's just, you know, relaxed. And if we save it for the end of long runs, like, yeah, the body can adapt through that stress. But it, boy, it's hard. And it also will enhance injury risk because you're doing it on like an actively broken down musculoskeletal system. Tremendous insights. That degrading of efficiency over time when you're out for two or two and a half hours and using those quality segments earlier on, actually allowing you over the course of time when you get to race day to have better efficiency at the end without having worked on it as much at the end in your training runs, taking less risk on the way. Uh, yeah, and you know, the caveat to that gets back to some of your earlier points. So one, the mental side, whatever you want to call it, that can, like, if there are benefits, that would, they could be accrued more rapidly by doing like a fast finish long run. Sure. Um, the second would be if we're talking purely of aerobic adaptation and fat oxidation. There could be some benefits to saving it to the end, which is why like where I would say if an athlete does want to do like a faster finish long run, which is not, not unheard of, um, particularly for our athletes that are like at the very top level of, you know, trying to maximize their performance potential is to make, make sure that the beginning of that long run is done in a way that doesn't overly sap the system. Like you're not trying to intentionally fatigue yourself, you're just trying to provide a strong aerobic and fat oxidation stimulus going in. Um, so very, like a very easy controlled long run with full fueling and full hydration. And then you're adding on whatever the fast finish is, whether it's a workout or intensity of, of some type. Um, but not to do it just after like hammering your body. Like, you know, what I see a lot of athletes do, especially young athletes in, in out of college or in college is they'll go, you know, do a steady long run at a very impressive pace and then try to finish fast off that. And yes, you can do that, but also why? And also that's where breakdown happens and short careers happen. Um, and if we're talking about the six year, like this long-term cycle, um, you wanna try to avoid those risks when you can. Yeah, everything has its place, right? We don't want people to leave this saying there's never a time for a progressive long run. I think they can be great oh, if yeah. used appropriately, but it's nice to see some examples of different 
approaches that people can use to diversify their training to one, physiologically improve, but two, add some fun, add something new to a routine that may be getting stale. And sometimes that change is, is critically valuable. In progressive long runs, definitely have a point. But if you look at a pro athlete doing a progressive long run, I think the problem is that it looks, it looks similar, but it is so different than an intermediate athlete trying to do the same thing. So like if a pro athlete progresses down toward marathon pace or marathon effort or steady running, that's not a huge stress on their system, though it looks very impressive on Strava and will feel like a very hard workout. Um, and it has its great aerobic benefits. If you look at the same run from like, you know, maybe an intermediate athlete or a beginner athlete even, um, they'll often finish so fast or, or so hard relative to those same effort levels that you, the risk just skyrockets. Um, and it's one of the hard parts about interpolating from outliers, which is how a lot of training theory gets developed. If we look at, you know, an Olympian and say, okay, how does this apply to everyone else? The answer is it, it just doesn't. Like the things that make that person an Olympian also make it so that some of the underlying assumptions are just not the same. That we're trying to solve an equation with, you know, multiple variables. Like it's just not algebraically, like there's too many unknowns for it to work. David, don't get me going on how things look on Strava. Uh, <laughs> we have to have perspective on that and know how we are different than others and, and what is appropriate for us. You're right on, on training theory, so much developing from either lab studies or what elites have done. And there's such an enormous gap in between that works for the rest of us. Uh, that's why I particularly enjoy some of the, uh, the Steven Seiler case studies, which we've mentioned on here before, where he's taken what worked for elites and then started to apply it down the chain, sub-elites, and then just post-collegiate, more average folks, and where we can draw actual connections from what the really fast people do to what I might do. My last point on that, for someone that's trying to interpret like how this is even apply to me, I would say if something just feels bad, like that might be a sign that it's not the direct path that will lead to your most adaptation, that chasing effort or chasing those, those fatigue-based feelings are not necessarily how to improve running economy. So let's say a fast finish long run being an, an example of that. Like if someone, most athletes that I know would perceive that and be like, oh my gosh, really? Um, and probably part of that is the, you know, them sensing that it's not the most productive thing for them. Meanwhile, other athletes are like, I love that stuff. And you're, you're likely perceiving something at a, your body is like incorporating thousands of variables that you're not even aware of into that evaluation. So let your coach know, let yourself know, like be honest with yourself about those things. And don't, don't just try to improve at things that you don't like, um, because there's probably a reason you don't like them. Well said. Okay, let's pivot then to the novice runner in this conversation who maybe they're focusing on a half marathon. They've run that distance once. Should that person consider injecting quality into the long run first? And, and second, maybe I'll add, we talked about that 14 to 16 miles as a baseline point, but, but you did bring up that it, it could be more about time. It could be shorter distances based on experience. Where would you, over, say, the course of 2021, like to get that person for their consistent long-run volume? So, you know, forgetting the distance, 90 minutes, you know, there's that old Frank Shorter quote about two hours or 20 minutes, whichever, mm -hmm. or two hours or 20 miles, whichever comes first. Um, you know, two hours really is a sweet spot, even if you're running those miles at 16 or 17 minute pace. Um, and so whatever that correlates to you is really good. But 90 minutes is a place where the glycogen depletion stimulus really starts to accumulate for most people. Um, and so 90, anything over 90 minutes to me is a long run. And so that's when we're talking about 16 miles, you know, when we're in, in interpolating from the pro outliers, usually that's about 16, you know, a little under 60 miles. And so like, that's kind of the, the framework. Like if 90 minutes means five miles to an athlete, that can be a long run. Um, and it can lead to the adaptations for this novice athlete that's doing a half marathon. I would say like, you know, don't sell yourself short. You can get to the point that you're doing eight to 10 miles every weekend, as long as it's like built up to in a safe way. And then yeah, inject that intensity. I mean, I think that there's most athletes have that massive reserve of potential I was talking about. 
And the only way to access that is to improve running economy. And yes, okay, if we get a purely aerobic stimulus of these easy long runs, that is a huge input into running economy and that will improve it eventually to a point. But if we can combine that aerobic stimulus with just a little bit of musculoskeletal output of like making more efficient movement patterns, neuromuscular and biomechanically, you can get start to get these athletes that go from two hours, 45 minutes and a half marathon to like two hours or, or 145 and then eventually even 130 or crazy things like that, or even faster than that. And so, um, you know, I do like intensity in the long run after they adapt to the full distance. Like if eight miles is pushing the limits of their endurance, wait until it, it, you can finish it comfortably. Um, but then after that, same ideas, you know, you can add one minute fartleks, you can add, you know, five by three minute, uh, th just things that add a little bit of that, uh, more efficient output to the aerobic stress. And also I think can make it more fun and um, really add, add something playful and in, in, in that feels more athletic to maybe something that could also become a slog or a grind over time. You touched on what I believe to be a timeless truth of running. We often are the ones setting our own limits, creating our own ceilings. And you said even the novice he or she may have tremendous potential that just hasn't been unlocked yet. Don't sell yourself short. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people downplay their talent in general, not just in running, but in everything in life. Thinking of talent as this monolith of I am talented or I am not, or I am at 50% 50th percentile talent. And that is not at all how talent works. Like, um, my wife, Megan, is a doctor who does a lot of work in genetics. And the more we learn about genetics, we learn that people are outliers somewhere. Every single person is somewhere. Is, you know, if you're talking about running specifically, even. Um, yes, VO2 max is a talent. And there are some people that will be through the roof. And yes, they may be Olympic champions. There are other people that have much more specific and interesting talents, calf strength or resilience or whatever. Um, and all of those things can be cultivated to a point that that person becomes an outlier in their own way. Where exactly that ends up is anyone's guess. But I, I mean, I really urge people not to sell short their talent. We are all so talented. Um, it's just, we're sometimes talented in very different ways. And the only way to find what that talent is, is to accept, accept it and then go for it. Um, and so the cool thing about running is it's a place where we can go for it in a relatively low stakes setting um, where, you know, we're testing all these things and turning all these knobs and everything else, but it's not, doesn't change anything about our self-worth or, or, you know, we're enough no matter what. Um, and so for an athlete that's trying to go from a three hour half marathon to a 245, I say freaking go for it. But the first thing you need to do there is accept that like you're not, you know, whatever that means in like, you know, percentile talent levels, you are freaking talented. You are an athlete and then make decisions accordingly. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to fueling. You've previously shared some very thoughtful advice on long run fueling, and I'd like to explore that topic with you a little bit more. So let's step outside the perspective of simply needing nutrition to fuel our bodies for long efforts. There are times when we could complete the run without nutrition, but you still recommend using it in those cases. Why? So... I mean, I think that that's the most important thing to realize is just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. It doesn't mean that cellularly it's a good thing whatsoever. So first though, let's take a step back and, and look at potential benefits. So there's a 2015 article in the Nutrition and Metabolism Journal that shows sometimes increased fat oxidation rates um, with underfueled long runs. Uh, there's a 2015 article in the European Journal of Sports Science. I wrote these down in advance just so I had them handy, um, that showed potential increased markers of adaptation in those settings. One reason that athletes might do doubles, for example, is probably to harness whatever that is measuring on the genetic um, and cellular level. And then you might have also heard of athletes that get fat adapted or whatever. So that, those are a general bucket. But the idea is like, those are such small beans adaptations compared to the negatives. Um, and any athlete, especially top athletes, like I coach some people that could go out right now and run for six hours at six minute, 30 pace and not feel a lick during it, but it would absolutely destroy their bodies on the cellular level, even though it felt normal at the time. And they might not even notice it. All that would happen is that their training and their adaptation would suck subsequently. And that gets back to the negatives, which I'll, I'll get into right now. 
So the first is the overall, like the, when we're just talking purely about performance on the day itself, which is that even moderate depletion of glycogen reduce, starts to reduce performance before it goes to zero. It's not just like unbonked and then bonked. Um, there's a much finer gradation there. Um, there's a 2008 study in the Journal of Applied Physiology that gets into that in more detail. But the, if you're just starting to, if you're just like picking one thing, the, the main thing to remember is that excessive within day deficits cause these physiological cascades that are bad, particularly for female athletes, but also male athletes um, that go far beyond the single day that of the performance. So like even if an athlete is able to perform and even if the heart rate is the same and all those other things, it can reduce performance subsequently. So is it cool if I get into those? I realize I've been talking for a bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that because that is the really significant piece here that a lot of us are overlooking and why this is important. Awesome. So there's two, like what I consider seminal studies on this, um, though it's mainly because the study design was so freaking perfect. Like whoever designed this clearly understood what they were trying to get at. Um, so the, a 2017 study in the Scandinavian Journal of Sports Medicine looked at female athletes. Um, and what they did is they, instead of breaking down, we know that reduced energy availability is bad day over day cycles, right? Like you need to eat enough every day. If you don't, it can cause major issues. What they did instead is broke it down into 30 minute increments and started to look at their athletes glycogen balance over those very fine uh, periods of time. And what they found is that even when controlling for day over day uh, caloric intake. So even athletes that ate the same amount, those that had greater within day deficits. So, you know, went, pushed themselves to, you know, negative glycogen availability more often had increased menstrual dysfunction, suppressed resting metabolic rate, um, reduced estrogen, and interestingly, worse body composition. And that's also from a study in 2000 in medicine and science and sports. So these athletes that were, you know, even that they were eating the same overall, they were causing the within day deficits type of thing that you might do in the long run and cause these major hormonal issues, essentially. Like the endocrine system just gets thrown for a full loop. Why exactly that is, it might relate to, to cortisol, to the way fat oxidation actually works. But for female athletes, that's why fasted training is almost never good. Like it's almost never something that should be pursued. And what that means in practice this study didn't really get into it. It's more, that's more where we get into like empirical knowledge and anecdotes. Um, but where it most applies, I think, is in these longer runs. Like if you start to underfuel these longer runs, you're really starting to run into these nasty hormonal outcomes. And those nasty hormonal outcomes, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I don't want to gain weight, so I'm not going to fuel my long run. The point is, it also makes your resting metabolic rate worse. And essentially, it turns down the fire on everything not just like your metabolism, but also the fire in your hormonal system and, and your reproductive system and, and everything like that. So I would really encourage, and, and Stacey Sims, amazing doctor wrote Roar, or mm -hmm. uh, PhD wrote Roar, um, the book Roar, gets into this in more detail. Maybe this also has to do with women, she has a theory that women don't necessarily improve their fat oxidation substantially, primarily due to the presence of estrogen to begin with. So needless to say, um, we encourage all female athletes to feel their longings. Okay, to interject on that for a moment then, I would infer as a next step that would also limit the efficacy of trying to get all those calories back in right after the run, which so many of us do. Uh, yeah. That it's already done some level of damage to our recovery cycle that we can't recover by going out and smashing a meal right after we did two hours. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. Maybe you could, you know, so the, the study looked at um, when it was looking at within day deficits, people still had within day deficits in both in the the group that didn't have menstrual dysfunction, they were just, they were just fewer of them. Mm. So perhaps an athlete, if they ate a burger after every long run, they could avoid some of these issues. What we see in practice, and this is where I start to, the reason I'm hedging my bets there is that, you know, I don't want to downplay other people's experiences, but what my wife and I have seen in athletes at every level is that when they start to play this game, it almost always, like if we're looking on the back end at blood biomarkers, you know, longer term type things that we look at with some of our athletes, we can sometimes tell it's like, oh, are you training faster? Or are you, or are you not feeling these long runs? Um, just from looking at that. And there's confounding variables too there because maybe someone's not feeling a long run because they 
might have some um, disordered relationships with eating outside of running too. But fueling the long run does not hurt. Um, it, it likely only helps. And the, the thing to come back to is that even if we weren't concerned necessarily about these hormonal issues, we're just concerned with performance. Like if we want faster running to take less effort, that is where your body will start to reduce performance before you bonk out anyway. So, you know, I don't want an athlete, like that athlete I was talking about before that could run six hours at 6.30 pace and, and without any fuel. Like at the end, they'd be having to kill themselves, like hammer it. That same athlete, if they had fueled that whole run, would just be like out on an even, out in a little stroll still. Mm. Um, and that we want to encourage that stroll feeling. Um, and that's where fueling comes in. So should I briefly look at, I mean, I can do this much more rapidly, but there's a companion study for male athletes. I can just look at what it does for them. Sure, please do. Awesome. So 2018 International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Um, what this really focused on was also a reduction in resting metabolic rate. So, you know, body composition worsened. Testosterone to cortisol ratio worsened. So higher cortisol, lower testosterone. This is something we often see in blood biomarkers, like the distance runners that do have reduced testosterone often don't fuel appropriately during their runs, but also maybe around them. Also higher cortisol, so higher stress hormone. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably what it all gets back to is we want to reduce stress. And it's a big stress on the body. Like if you think about intuitively someone going out for two or three hours and not giving their body any fuel in that moment, like if you think of that, just in like a, taking all these studies out, we're imagining we're on the prairies running um, without anything. Your body at some level is like, okay, I'm a little bit worried I'm going to die. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, and I think that that's essentially what these, these knobs are turning. It's like, okay, I need to make sure I'm not going to die here and turn up these knobs to a point of like self-preservation rather than performance. And what we want to keep is that we want to keep that performance knob turned, not the self-preservation knob. Last point to that, whether it be drawing on those studies or just your experience as a coach, we're so individualized in what we use to fuel and when and how, but perhaps a, a basic outline of what you recommend for your athletes as to how frequently we're getting that fuel into our bodies on the long effort. Yeah. And this is a place that's so hyper-individual and, mm -hmm. you know, Outside of the actually fueling, I don't really care is what I tell athletes. I mean, I, I care for the athletes I coach, but more broadly, I just want them to embrace that it matters, you know, for their health. And then, you know, for specific recommendations, the, the general rule of about 100 calories every 30 minutes um, is a great one. One, because it's very similar to most gel packets. Two, because it's super easy. Um, my wife and I actually just partnered with Spring Energy to create this gel called Awesome Sauce that's 180 calories with the idea that in high performance settings, that's about how much you can possibly replace every 30 minutes, but it doesn't need to be that much. Like we're not in these long runs in particular, I'm not looking for, okay, we need to feel every single one, just like a race at the max level of what you can possibly absorb. Um, I just want to stem that tide a little bit of glycogen depletion and get all whatever the neuromuscular factors are of, you know, the benefits of fueling going. So, you know, a gel packet every 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes with some hydration is a great way to do it. But it can be less than that too. It's just not like an all or nothing thing. Um, you know, if an, if an athlete takes a gel every hour even, that can work. General framework is 200 to 300 calories every hour, ideally working towards the top end of that over time. But on your just typical long run, that's also kind of impractical and less like fun or natural a lot of the times. And so it's okay to just fuel when you can and not worry too much about maximizing it. And then when we get closer to races, we start looking, okay, what's the max amount of fuel we can get into our bodies. And so when you talk about, I don't, how do you, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, which is crazy at this point, but Martin or yeah, whatever. Sure. Love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way, you know, I don't take it and not many of my athletes do, but the amazing research behind that indicates that it's essentially designed so that athletes can maximize the amount of caloric absorption at high intensity levels, because even though athletes in that, you know, the athletes that are sponsored by them, they're taking that in a half marathon. Those athletes are not getting glycogen depletion depleted fully in that half marathon. Instead, they're harnessing the fact that your performance starts to suffer before you get glycogen depleted. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a lesson that if you can get it in, it's probably going to help you. Yeah, I've seen research that shows them working with four gel packets of that an hour, hitting it every 15 minutes successfully. You know, I mean, what I like, if so, we're talking about ultra athletes where, you know, ultras are very interesting because they essentially become fueling competitions, like who can get the most in. Um, 
with a traditional gel that's like 100 to 120 calories, I try to encourage athletes to work on, you know, make sure that they're comfortable with like one every 20 minutes even. Um, and then, you know, real food for the longer events where you okay. do bigger amounts at, at certain moments. Um, or that's where our gel comes in that's 180 calories of like spring energy. It's the idea is that, you know, if you take that every 30 minutes, you're getting to 360. And if you take it a little bit more, you're getting even higher. And, you know, we've seen athletes that it, it depends, you can adapt your stomach over time if you do struggle with this. And the people that do that, sometimes they're able to, I mean, the research indicates that some people can take in 400 to 500 calories an hour, though that's not that easy during more intense running. Um, and the coolest part of that research is that athletes that do that also show less post-event breakdown. And so if we're talking about long-term like performance and injury rates and all these other things, essentially, I think sometimes we're looking at how someone feels, not necessarily how they train or even their underlying genetics. It's great advice because there's no question that you can adapt over time, get your body used to taking in more. And as you said, experiment with what works for you. It's going to take time to figure out dialing in the right sequencing and the right combination for, for every athlete. Well, in the stomach, one of the most highly adaptable organs in the whole body. Um, the ter cell turnover there is very high. There's theories of like epigenetic memory. So the, the cells themselves can process better over many germlines. And so don't think that where you are is anything related to, it's probably just related to your past habits. Um, you know, one of the most fascinating things I see is that people that were cross-country skiers before they became runners can eat just about anything while they're running. Because during cross-country skiing, they eat like, whatever, pizzas, they don't, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think a lot of runners might not come from that background or, or come from a background where eating during activity is necessarily common and not have that experience. But basically, even if someone with a sensitive stomach can learn these things. And, you know, I mean, we'll even have athletes the day before, two days before a race, they'll take a gel during their short shakeouts um, because there is some sort of cellular memory in, the, in those systems. And, you know, there's some theories that it can help and it doesn't hurt. So, you know, gut training is a thing. You can even Google that in, in my name for some of the, the recommendations on it. But through gut training, anything we're talking about fueling is possible for just about anyone, except maybe people with like IBS or Crohn's disease. And, and even they, they could figure out some combination that can, can help them work through these processes. Yeah, I find this all to be really sound, well-reasoned. And as I mentioned to you before in, in our previous conversations, it runs contrary to some of the kind of machismo we see, particularly among the collegiate or post-collegiate runner who's gone his entire career running two hours without fueling. But that doesn't mean that's the only path you can take. Just because we've done it doesn't mean we couldn't do it better. Yeah. And if you watch enough, if you watch the sport long enough over time, I mean, how many athletes come and go in their mid twenties, you know? And what you're seeing there is just, that's when stress starts to add up for a lot of these athletes that ran in college. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're starting to think, and, and the problem with that is that that is not the time frame from which top performance comes. Like it takes longer, you know, you look at someone like Sarah Hall or Steph Bruce in, in women's running or, you know, all the male examples. It's like, you need to have a framework set up that allows for that long-term trajectory. Plus it just makes her a better life. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of 24 year old with a lot of machismo that have testosterone through the freaking floor. Um, and like whatever our brains say we can do, yeah, sure it can, but our bodies don't play by those rules. And so I really want athletes to think about, okay, how is my body actually responding to this and try to take some of the, like the preconceived notions out of it. That doesn't mean also that there's a place never for depletion runs. I would say there's probably a never a place for depletion runs for most female athletes, but for, for male athletes, there is a place for sometimes very easy runs that you might just do with like, hydration, since there's no benefit to dehydration. Um, I would just say, make sure it stays easy and that you're not producing a substantial amount of cortisol. You're not stressing your hormonal system too much because even though men don't have the menstrual cycle, they're still susceptible to the hormonal fluctuations that can cause terrible psychological cascades or physical, physiological and psychological cascades, no matter who you are, maybe a little more resistant to it at 20 than 25, let alone 30 or 35 or 50, you know, 45, um, but important nonetheless. Yeah, that was perfect because I next wanted to ask when you could go without to get those benefits you mentioned a while back. But as a, an example to what you just spoke about your long-term trajectory, you know, we just had Natasha Wodak on the program and a couple of weeks ago, she's running 226 at age 39 to be the second fastest Canadian ever. 
and just having a long-term vision for your planning, structure, fueling, all of these elements together, you can do things maybe you didn't previously think possible and you can do them at an age where you might have thought, I'm headed on the downhill of my career. Oh yeah, I love that. I love, her story is so remarkable. And you know, it just gets back to treating your body with love. Depletion, withholding, all these different things. Like, yes, there's physiological reasons that we could get into all of it, but on a more general scale, like punishing your body is not the way for top performance. Maybe it is very short term, you know, like the hardest workout you can do or the most suffering you can can endure or anything like that. But you know, we all know the horror stories, you know, even if they're not horror stories that are obvious, like overtraining syndrome or, or terrible injuries, we all know the horror stories of people. It's like, whatever happened to that person? And, you know, not to say it's their fault because it's not like, that's just, we're all decaying at different rates. It's more that like, you know, try to think of your own trajectory with like affection and, and, you know, treat your body accordingly as much as possible. Because that's where, that's where this massive long-term growth comes in. But it's also where like running starts to interact with family and job and, you know, everything else to create this person that like, you know, loves themselves. And that's what it's all about. This is a fascinating conversation. Let's move to just a few quick questions here before we go. First, how do you respond when a long run goes south? You're in the run during the moment. You realize I'm not hitting the original goals for the day. How would you pivot? Yes, that gets back to, you know, you can also see this in a workout or or any day. It's understanding where the line is between like self-destruction and stimulus, right? Because there is everything we do is on the line of recovery, is on the line of injury and adaptation. Like injury and adaptation are, are siblings, um, they're on the same spectrum. And so what I like athletes to think about is when you're, when you're thinking about self-destruction, is there any pain? Is, there, is, this, is this solely something that is my perspective on myself and what I'm doing? Or is this my body sending signals that it is not ready to do what I'm doing? Um, so first thing to do is control the perspective on yourself. It's like, okay, I love myself. I truly do. Do I still hate what I'm doing for some reason? If the answer is yes, bag it immediately. Um, because, you know, like a lot of the times athletes will undercut themselves due to lack of like giving a crap about, about themselves. And that's not something I ever want. Um, but once it gets beyond that, there's, there's probably very little physiological benefit coming from it. The second like is just, you know, if you have pain or it's purely not like any fun, even type two fun, also bag it. That you always have tomorrow. You always have the next day and the next day and the next day. No run particularly matters in the big scheme of that. If, it, if everything is just a brick in the wall, don't put in these bricks that you're just not proud of and you don't like, you know, that are ugly to you, that you don't appreciate. And to, you know, I, they, talk, they talk about the walk of shame, you know, in runners. I think it's really the walk of pride. Like athletes that do pr- practice the self-love are able to be like, okay, this just isn't my day. Um, and, and not judge themselves from it. Just understand that sometimes we can't predict it. Yeah, not only is it not our day, but it's just one day in a much yeah. Oh, yeah. larger calendar. You know, yeah, We're talking years here. Not only does one day not matter, one day is purely like in the play and fun you get from it. Mm-hmm. And yes, running training is not easy, but the point is that it fits into this broader narrative that is playful and fun, even if it's not every moment you're doing it, or even ever when you're doing it for some people. And if it's not fitting into that framework, it is not a brick that is going to contribute to that wall either. Um, it could, in fact, do the opposite. Um, so always feel free to, I mean, I, I want athletes to always be free to like, nope, not today. Um, you know, if it becomes a habit, like every darn day, my guess is that it gets back to something physical that we need to test with a blood marker or, or something else, but, or psychological where, they, where it's important to talk to a therapist about, you know, broader picture issues. But a, a bad day. I mean, that's just, that's just, not only is that a part of the process, I think that's the whole reason we run in the first place. <laughs> what does the day after the long run look like for you? Amazing question. So we rarely back up long runs into um, like rest days or, or traditional, like very easy training. Um, for us in a, in a traditional cycle, let's say that an athlete is on like a weekly cycle, the long run would be on Saturday because it is a, a concentrated stress, Right. Um, and then we back that up with on Sunday, maybe a more purely aerobic stimulus, possibly with strides, um, most likely hill strides or something like that. 
Um, and the reasoning there is that there are long stress tails on these long runs, even easy ones. So there's an acute stress like muscle soreness and things. As an athlete develops, they might have zero muscle soreness the next day or even 30 minutes later. But there are chronic stress stresses as well where you're starting to talk about things like you know their hemoglobin, their cortisol, other variables that might not necessarily be apparent when they're judging them or you know self-evaluating, but are there if you start to look around. Um, and that, that tail is fine, but we don't want to stack too many tails on top of each other because that's where things like overtraining syndrome can start to appear or, or injuries or burnout or things like that. And so if we're causing the, the stress that instigates the tail on Saturday, I like the, the next rise into training being a few days later. So Saturday, then Saturday work, or long run workout or long run, Sunday easy with maybe strides, Monday rest or similar, Tuesday easy possibly a workout, but then Wednesday midweek workout. And then you're starting the process again. So you have these waves in the cycle and you're never stacking up the, the tail ends of the waves too much. Because I think when people get overtrained, it's not usually from a workout or even a very, very, very hard workout, even three very hard workouts. It's usually that in between period, the wave doesn't have enough time to go back out to sea. And if you give it the time to go back out to sea, I'm not afraid of hard, very hard workouts. Like you know, I will, I'm a huge fan of Canova blocks where you do two workouts in one day. I'm a huge fan of, you know, the more traditional marathon workouts where you'll do, you know, a massive amount of volume at marathon effort and harder, but I am also a huge fan of recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the recovery element I think is the most important. So space out that long run as much as you can to give it time going into either a rest day or a down period before your next intense stimulus or volume stimulus or anything. Yeah. That uh, the Canova blocks and then what we're seeing with the Ingebrigtsen double threshold day training, I think is a really interesting oh, yeah. point to explore somewhere in the future. So it probably gets in, it's probably overlaps a lot in terms of physiological mechanisms with what we're talking about. Um, especially when I started to mention that, you know, the potentially increased markers of adaptation under higher rates of glycogen stress and that we're, that what they're trying to do through maximizing time at threshold across two different workouts might be just trying to increase these uh, ex protein expression and things like that. Like very, you know, it's, it, you start to get into like almost lab experiments with, with mm -hmm. individual humans, but that's where training gets really fun is that, you know, we don't necessarily know why anything works. Oh, we have, a, we have ideas, <laughs> um, but it's probably way more complicated than can be diagrammed or talked about by someone like me in a podcast. Um, it's one thing that's so helpful about having my wife and co-coach be a doctor and, a, and an epidemiologist. It's like, you know, we start to delve into some of the genetics of this and, and it gets so interesting and so complicated that it's almost like analysis or paralysis by analysis if you sure. really delve into why something works. And that's why it's so helpful to have athletes to look toward, but also cautioning the interpolation from outliers thing where one, genetic anomalies, two, especially like if you look at athletes from the 90s and early 2000s and like if you look at some of their workouts, it's like, oh, well, now we know, I mean, probably knew at the time too, that wasn't clean. Mm -hmm. And um, so whether someone's a genetic anomaly or a pharmaceutical anomaly, like it also can change how we think about like this training for someone that's a teacher that works 50 hours a week or whatever, or works, you know, at a running store or whatever. Like it's probably just all slightly different. And so just important to understand our own context in that. That being said, I really like the, the big sexy workouts. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. That, that stuff is so fun to get into, but you have to understand its position within your greater training. And, and as you said, how valuable the recovery is in making those workouts actually advance your ability level. Uh, you're spot on. And, and as you said there, I, I think so many times with running, the, the science is not about telling us with certainty what works, but more about eliminating things that don't work as we start to experiment with them. That's so true. That's so true. And I think the hard part is, you know, if we're talking about long-term cycles, it's almost impossible to isolate variables in a scientific setting, um, let alone the confounding variables that you'll have on short timeframes. When you start talking about long timeframes, it's just pure chaos, like pure chaos theory. There's so many variables that are unmeasured, all interacting in nonlinear ways. So what we think we're measuring might not even be what we're measuring. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. It's where you draw a conclusion and come to the wrong reason for that conclusion. You know, like, it, it, you know, you're, you're saying something works, but you don't know why, but you think you know why. And so that's why, like, when you hear people that really are savvy about training, like you are, often it's, we don't know, not sure. 
this is might be why these are things that I think might apply. Um, so I hope everything I say comes with that big grain of salt, which is maybe, maybe. I'll let you know if that changes with uh, <laughs> anything I see. But, uh, I'm sure it will. Well, I, there's much to appreciate from someone who doesn't always have certainty, but is willing to learn and to, to keep getting better. I think that's all we're asking for any of us in our own running and in the people that we work with. Given your trail experience, how could the road racer benefit from occasionally stepping off the road and hitting a trail for a long run? Oh, huge benefit, particularly on like when you're not training specifically for pace, like output related variables, right? Um, some of what we are looking at in road marathon performance relates to things like in the neuromuscular bucket, central fatigue, um, and the ability of the body to withstand unique stresses and eccentric muscle contractions and all these different things. And when you talk about trails, like it's the ultimate variable movement patterns that increase rates of central fatigue and, and you know, increase stresses in slightly different directions. So, you know, if you have an easy long run, yeah, you can definitely do that on trails. I wouldn't necessarily say go up and down a mountain, but it, it has a role. I mean, I, you know, Hayden Hawks um, right now is, is training for a road uh, world, you know, world record attempts. And he's doing probably every third or fourth long run, easy, mostly easy on trails, you know, because part of the thing is in the hundred K we can't simulate mile 50, the central fatigue of that, like the, the body just getting, you know, tuckered out essentially scientific term, um, <laughs> you know, but through trails, we can start to cover more adaptation bases. And that's kind of like how I like the athletes, I think is like, there's a temptation with training to be like, okay, this is a threshold block. This is a critical velocity block. This is a VO2 max workout, whatever. Um, and the body doesn't adapt in such, in such like narrow constraints, you know? Um, and in the, in that context, like I really like athletes to think about, okay, I want to adapt this whole like athletic process from, you know, being very aerobic, repetitive motion type stuff to very aerobic trail type stuff to maybe more intense speed style workouts to like more intense like hill workouts. And, and once you start to do that, you know, then you can get very specific to like a road race within the last like month or two or months, four to six weeks. But before that, like a generalized athlete will usually raise their full per performance potential. Um, so mix it up, not just mix it up with like terrain, but mix it up with the type of stimulus you're going for, you know, do combo workouts where you're throwing, you know, on top of your, maybe a threshold workout or a, whatever your traditional workout, you're doing really hard strides after like you might see 10 man a week do here on Boulder, um, or the opposite after your intense workout, throwing a little bit of tempo off it, um, mix it, you know, the, those types of like, if we don't know how adaptation works, giving your body a nice range of stimuli with the general principle that most of it is easy. You are developing your max speed and you are like living this free athletic life. You'll probably be able to get really close to your potential doing that. And you're going to have way more fun. David, I love your attitude and your energy. And so <laughs> I, I want to close with this. What do you believe is the role of enthusiasm and optimism in making not only a great long run, but a great runner in general. So I think this applies to everything. If someone, if anyone listening has not watched the show Ted Lasso on Apple Plus, your assignment is to watch it. Stop, never listen to anything I ever say again until you watch that show. It is the perfect encapsulation of this question and the general like thesis of that show. One, it's hilarious, but two is that optimism, belief, and all these different things that we're talking about are not simple emotions. They are the most complex emotions that you're able to look at this, this world that is full of, of darkness and death and age-related decay and, and whatever else you want to say and able to find those little specks of light. So, you know, there's a lot of amazing questions from that, but, or topics from that, but it's about a, a soccer coach. But maybe the best is just where he emphasizes, be a goldfish. That doesn't mean that we don't learn from our mistakes. It just means you've got to have a short memory. And a short memory is the ultimate version of optimism because whatever happened yesterday, you have hope for tomorrow. Um, and whatever happened, you know, on your long run last week, you're ready for the next one. So, you know, I think running is great. And the reason that there's so many runners that are these amazing humans and philosophers and everything else you want to say is because running makes you run right up against failure all the freaking time. And if you have pessimism and you fail all the time, just confirms what you're looking for. It just confirms that downfall. It just confirms those negative things. You know, you need to have a little bit of that reckless self-belief that like 
enthusiasm for its own sake, that tomorrow is going to be better no matter what yesterday was, I think to get anywhere close to your potential. And that's what's so magic about running. And, and if you can apply that to other things in life, then you know the goldfish has no limits to what it can accomplish. I love it, David. Once I get finished with the Queen's Gambit. I'm now locked in on oh my the F Netflix series. Once I get through that, Ted Lasso is up next. Yeah, Queen's Gambit, very, very good. But honestly, the number of athletes that have told me that Ted Lasso has changed their entire view of the world. Um, I, I think it's it's one of those really cool moments that the creators had an idea what they were what they were doing and what they were going for, but they hit the exact nerve a large amount of people needed at exactly the right time. So yeah. I bet there's people listening to this right now that are um, smiling and nodding as big as they can. And so, yeah, that's, that's my final message is uh, channel some of that Ted Lasso approach to yourself too. Um, and that'll make a lot of sense after you see it. David, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. A lot for people to take away from this to become better runners and optimistic, enthusiastic athletes as we move through 2021 and learn a lot of lessons from 2020. So thank you so much for your time, David. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. And to everyone listening, you are freaking awesome. Go for it like the goldfish. And we got this. Our thanks again to David. He provided so much thought-provoking material. Before we go, we want to congratulate James Toole. James was among the many people to email us for the run-in shoe giveaway and his name was randomly drawn as the winner. So James, we will be in touch, and then we'll be looking for you on the track or trail in your fresh new trainers. Thanks so much for listening to Mile 70. If you're enjoying the program, please subscribe, rate, and review, and we can't wait to spend time with you again on Mile 71.